I was telling some people during the greet time, Joe, that I remember that song as a VBS song, and you would sing it faster and faster and faster and faster. So like every in and around, and so every part of me wanted to just run ahead of how fast you were singing it. I just wanted to see how fast I could sing it. Um, good memories of being a VBS kid. If you would, please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 3. First John is not the Gospel of John. Um, as a young person, I always assume that the first John must be the Gospel of John, but it is not. So if you are looking for First John in your Bibles, it is actually towards the very back of the Bible. Um, the reason for that being, uh, one, because John did not write particularly long letters. Um, he was also not Paul, so all of his letters got put after Paul. And so we find him almost in the very, very back of our Bibles. We're going to be at 1 John chapter 3, and I'm going to be reading verses 11 through 18. If you are able, I know it says six, I think it says 16 in your bulletin, but I'm going to go ahead and read through 18. Um, and if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And the Word of God says this, it says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. For what reason did he slay him? But because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Please be seated. Homecoming time is often a time for us to go back and to reflect on what God has done for as a, as a church and, and really just who we are as Tunnel Hill Baptist Church. In our church constitution and bylaws, you will read this mission statement. It says, our mission is to glorify God to lead people to become followers of Jesus Christ and to disciple believers into greater maturity. I want to read that again, and I want you to understand here for just a second, you know, we're not a business. I'm not a CEO. The deacons are not a board of directors. But we exist for a reason. This church is a group of believers who have come together in a covenant for the purpose of doing something, of accomplishing something. And that something is usually wrapped up in a mission statement. So our mission, the reason we exist, the reason we gather, the reason that we become a member of this church and we identify as a member of Tunnel Hill Baptist Church is to glorify God. And to glorify God by leading people to become followers of Jesus Christ and discipling those believers into greater maturity. 
Now, several years ago, and, and for many of you, this is going to be the first time you hear this, but it's probably not going to be the last time you hear this. But many years ago, we began to ask the question of how do we live out this mission statement in what we do as a church? And we kind of put all of that together and we put it under one big word that we thought was an important word for our church, and that church is together. And so we as a church, in order to glorify God, leading people to become followers of Christ and discipling those believers into greater maturity, we decided that we would first gather together. And we would gather together in worship and we would call other people together with us in worship so that they might hear the good news of the gospel and become believers. With gathering together, we would share life together. We even see this today in our Sunday school classes as we come together and, and share a, a time where we, uh, where we talk about our, our praises and our prayer concerns, where we apply the Bible in our lives and really have, have a conversation about what the Bible is telling us about who we are and what we ought to do. We gather together, we share life together, we grow in our faith together. See, we gather, and the reason that we have times like this and times like Sunday school, the reason we do home groups and, and evangelism Bible studies and all those things is because we want to see every follower of Jesus to grow as a follower of Jesus, to become more like Jesus and less like the world. And finally, that we serve one another and the world together. This means not only do we love each other and support each other and pray for each other and build up one another, but also we go to a world that desperately needs to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we share it with them. And we serve them and love them and invest in them so they might listen when we share the good news of the gospel with them. As I was thinking about what we do and how we disciple people in this church, and as I thought about this togetherness of gathering together, sharing together, growing together, and serving together, I began to realize that there is something in the midst of all of this and something attached to that word together that, that can sometimes get missed when we start to look at this as just like some process, like we're herding cattle through the corrals. That if it's that there's one thing that if it's not present in the church, that it becomes noticeable and it makes all of these things, our mission statement, our discipleship process, even our very covenant worthless. And that is we have to love each other. As I have said last week, I'll say again, I had the blessing of, of having sabbatical over the month of July. And part of my sabbatical, which again is something I've kind of already mentioned in the, in the last week, part of my sabbatical was getting to go and visit other churches as just a person. And, and I'll, I'll point out, I don't know how many people really make priority, like going to a worship service, say when you're traveling or you're on vacation. My family tends to do that. Um, I don't think my kids like it. I think they're kind of hoping that if we're on vacation, that means we get to sleep in on Sunday and I'm the guy that's like Googling churches close by. But it's interesting to go into a church who they don't know you, or maybe they did. Several of the churches did know me. 
You're not really going there to be a member. You're not really there because you're moving to the area or anything like that. And they just got to kind of figure out what to do with you. It's kind of fun. But I had the opportunity to visit all of these churches. And, and as I kind of got into it a couple weeks, I started to notice something that really surprised me. And I don't want to say this in, in a way that, that would, would uh, bash another church. And, and the reason for that being is I know this happens here too. But it was still kind of surprising because some of these places did know who I was. Like, did know I was the pastor at Tunnel Hill. You know, maybe it's because I was, you know, the son of one of their, their church members or it was because I had a friend. But I was really surprised at how comfortable people are in their church speaking negatively about other people in the church. And it was something that I started to notice kind of at the beginning, and then it got more and more noticeable. And then by the, by the, the fifth week, it was kind of shocking. And these are good churches. These are good people. But whether it was in a Sunday school class or in a sermon or in other conversations, just kind of how comfortable the churches had gotten about saying negative things about each other. I'd hear pastors complain about their congregation. I'd hear church staff complaining about other church staff. Church members talking down their leadership. Church members talking down each other. And I was a little taken back. I was, re- was kind of surprised. In fact, at, at a couple times, I kind of thought, wow. Sometimes I have to be really honest. I kind of looked at someone near me and I go, what does this have to do with the pastor's leadership? And there was this, this kind of thing going on amongst them that, that really kind of made me think like, wow, do you guys even like each other? And so I, it led me to some reflection. And, and I want you to understand, I don't want you to think for a millisecond that, because that, I know we say a lot of times, oh, we, you know, just we're such a loving church and all that. And that's true. I think it really is. But we do that here. We most certainly do that here. We talk about each other. I'm sure there have been people in this congregation that have had their opinion about me. I know there are people who have had my opinion about you. I think worship leaders get it way harder than pastors. Sometimes from their own mother. <laughs> I'll, yeah. Uh, I know we do it about youth leaders. But the reason I know it happens in this church more than anything is I know that I do it. And that I have to, I kind of realize, in fact, as I'm hearing it come out of other people's mouths, I started to realize how guilty I am of doing that, of being upset with someone else in the church and at the very least letting my wife know about it. At the worst, letting my kids know about it. And then possibly letting other people in the church know about it too. And so when I do that and when I realize that that's happening in me, then it made me have to ask the question, do I really love my church? And I can't get get specific. I can't say, well, yeah, I I love them, but I don't know about him. No, this is this is my church. 
Do I love my church? Do I love this place that I gather? Do I love this place that I put my name on the membership roll? Do I really love my church? And I think that's a question we should all ask, and what a fitting day to ask it today. Do my actions and my speech and my behaviors and my attitude communicate not only to this congregation, but to everyone out there in the world, wow, this guy really loves his church. Now you may say to yourself, yeah, preacher, that's good for you to feel that way. That's good for you to kind of have those thoughts. But, but you don't know what the church has done to me. You don't know what that person's done to me, or you don't know how the church as a whole has, has done something to me. How can you possibly expect me to not only love the church as whole, but really every single individual within the church after all the things that I've experienced? And I've heard it said. And I understand where you're coming from, and I, and I get it. But look again at verse 11. He says, for the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. See, the reality is, is I'm not telling you, I'm not encouraging you, I'm not hoping that you will love your brothers and sisters in Christ. God in Christ is commanding you to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let the weight of that sink in for just a moment. And I want to give you guys today kind of the maybe something that will help you do that. I want to give you some truths from this passage and throughout Scripture that may help shape your perspective and enable you to start truly loving your brothers and sisters in Christ in this room and beyond. The first truth that I want you to understand, that I want to help shape the way you view your brothers and sisters in Christ is this, that we all have the same problem have you ever said to about somebody in this room or another believer what's their problem i have i've said it about people in my house i've said it about people in my house today and the reality is is their problem is my problem in fact, John kind of talks about that problem in the passage. Look at verses 13 and 14. He states, Do not be su surprised, brethren, when, if the world hates you, because we knew that we have passed out of death into life. John reminds the church that the persecution that they are experiencing at the time is the direct result of the fact that they are different from the rest of the world. Indeed, they are different than who they used to be. What did they used to be? Well, we talked about it last week. They were dead. That you pass from death into life. And this is true of every single person on the planet. At some point in our lives, we are found dead in our sin. They were in that time, and we here in this room today, at one point in our life, maybe still today, were dead, lost, separated from God because of their sin. And I still want to, and I want, I gotta, I gotta, 
hit this again. This is true of every single person in this room. There is not one single person in this room who has escaped the reality that there is sin in their life, and because of their sin, they are dead in their sin. The scary thing might be is for some of us, that is still true even today. To point to the universality of this sin problem that we all share, I want to point to Psalm 14. And in Psalm 14, Psalm 14 is such an interesting and such an important uh, psalm is that it's in the book of Psalms twice. So in case you skip the first book and go to one of the other books of the book of Psalms, you'll catch it again. Jesus quoted it. The apostles quoted it. It's referenced in a lot of ways by Isaiah. It is a very important passage. Psalm 14 begins with these words. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. David is not just writing about lost people. David is not just writing about Israel. David is writing about, notice again in what it says there in Psalm 14, he looked upon all the sons of men. See, David And God, through David, is talking about us. In fact, this is all about us and the reality that no one escapes God's indictment here. We have all a common problem, and that problem is sin. And that should remind us that we are all in this together. I would love to tell you that I am way more holy than you. I am not. You may look at other people in this room and think to yourself, they are way more holy than me. They are not. And you may also, by the contrast of that, you may look at other people and say, I cannot believe that they have the audacity to come into this building. They are no worse than you. And we may say, if I walk into that building, the whole place is going to come down. You are no worse than the people in that building. See, we all have a problem, and that problem is sin. And that sin has affected us in every way that we can possibly conceive. I always find such humor when we start discussing what we think heaven will be like. And whether you think heaven means a white robe and sitting on a cloud and strumming a harp, or you believe that you're going to be dancing in streets of gold to the most amazing multicultural symphony that you have ever heard, we have no idea what heaven will be like because we cannot even possibly conceive what life and our bodies and the world and our brain is going to be like without sin. Sin has so corrupted every area of our life that we do not have a concept of what life without sin is apart from looking at Jesus. That's it. And so when we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, and you look at them sometimes, and and hopefully you're better about not expressing emotion on your face, 
I, I don't have a great poker face sometimes. I inherited that from my father. And so sometimes when I look at people, sometimes my wife has to go fix your face. Because sometimes people be talking and I'm doing this. And this bottom chin sticks out and my eyes start to squint together and I start to hunch forward. And that means I think you are completely full of baloney. And I probably shouldn't have told this whole congregation that because I'm going to get in a lot more trouble now, aren't I? And we look at those things and we start to look at people and go, what is wrong with them? And someone needs to do something about them. Fix your face. And the things that confuse you, baffle you, enrage you, frustrate you about other people, that's present in you as well. And I hope that reality that truth, that problem that we all share moves you away from judgment and condemnation, to a- away from anger and bitterness, and moves you to compassion and empathy and even love. Because you recognize that your imperfect self is going through the same struggles that their imperfect self is going through. And that you would love them as they are working out their salvation. First thing is, we have the same sin problem. And the reality of that leads us to the fact that we all have the same need. Our problem brings light to our our need. Remember uh, what John said. He said that in Christ we pass from death to life, which means that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. And therefore, because of our dead, because of our, the fact that we are dead, we have a need. We read about this a little bit at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, just listen, says this, that you were dead in your trespasses and sin, of which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. 1 John 11 even drives that home, or excuse me, 1 John 3, 11, that tells us that the world hates us is explained in this passage in Ephesians. See, we used to belong to the world, think like the world, work in the way that the world wanted us to work, but now because of the change, the world no longer wants to claim us. And since all of us share this problem of sin, that problem reveals to all of us this shared need that we are dead and we need to be made alive. And that is true of all of us in this room, and that is true of everyone outside of this room. There's no one in this room who was never dead. For as as Psalm 14 reminds us that that God looks and finds no one who is pursuing him, seeking after him, seeking after righteousness. And there's no one in this room that can just stay in death. We all need to be made alive. And again, this should and again, this is something that should really move us to compassion to love people because we recognize if indeed you are in Christ and you have passed from death to life, that the only thing that has made that difference is Jesus coming into your life. And then you should look at those of your brothers and sisters in this room and really the people outside of this room and think, oh my goodness, they need to experience that same life 
They need that life that I knew I needed. We all need that life, and, and we need to experience it and experience it more and more and in newer and newer ways, and we need that solution. We all have this need. And since we all have this need, we all have to, we all have to look for that solution, and that solution we find in Scripture is a reminder that we have all received the same grace as well. See, think about this for just a second. We all have the same sin problem. That sin problem reveals to us that we all have this deep need to be saved. And if indeed we are in Christ and you're a brother and sister in Christ and all that stuff, that we all received that salvation, we all had that need met by the same grace. The Bible reminds us that there is only one solution to our problem and that there is only one person who can meet the need that we are talking about, and his name is Jesus. Acts 4.12 says this so beautifully when, they, when the apostles said that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you must be saved. That name is Jesus. We all have the same problem. That means that we all have the same need. And we all must be saved by that same grace. Going back to Ephesians 2, I want to read to you verses 8 and 9. Certainly one that I would strongly encourage you to remember. It says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. But it is a gift of God, and it is not a result of works, so that no man may boast. I want to take special note in that, that part there that it says that it is not as a result of works so that no man may boast. I want to really think about that for, for just a second. See, if there was any way that we could be good enough, that we could follow enough rules, that we could attend church enough, give enough, um, just be moral enough, whatever, if there's any way that we could do that, then, then everything else kind of goes out the window, right? Like if I'm a guy, and I am a guy, who is a dirty, rotten sinner, I know I am, and I recognize that my sin puts me condemned, judged, dead, and that I have this huge need to be saved, and that the only way I'm going to be saved is by salvation, by grace, through faith, but one of you didn't need that salvation. One of you figured it out all on your own. You were good enough, you were moral enough. You did the right things. You said the right magic spell and you did it on your own and you're good all by yourself. I would congratulate you. You are better than me. But I would also mourn because that means Christ died needlessly. And I don't need to be a follower of Jesus anymore because I can just be a follower of you. But that's not true, is it? And I don't think there's anyone in this room who can really say, oh, yeah, I figured it out. I, you know what? Me and Jesus, we're good. We worked, out, we, we worked out our own little arrangement. Me and God, we worked out our own little arrangement. I don't need all that organized religion stuff. The reality is, is if we are in Christ and we have been saved, by grace through faith. And if we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, 
and we have nothing to boast about. We have nothing to elevate us about another person. We have nothing by which we can look down our nose on someone else and say, I'm a better Christian than them. I'm a better tunnel hiller than them. We are all sinners saved by grace. And as you look across this room, whether they have the title pastor or minister, deacon, member, teacher, whatever it might be, they are a sinner saved by grace. They are one beggar telling another beggar where the bread is. And again, it should move us to humility and love. We all have the same problem. We all have the same need. We have all been saved by the same grace. And we are all in the same family. If we look again at verses 17 or 15 through 17, you'll notice that he uses this kind of great word. And depending on your translation, you'll see a few things in the New American Standard. It uses this word like brothers or brethren. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible uses brothers and sisters. All of these are actually a, literally kind of a word. And lots of languages have this where they have a word that really means just siblings. We have that word too, obviously, siblings, but we don't always use it. And it means your brothers and sisters in Christ, your siblings... In Christ, there's a reminder in just the words that they use at this time that if they were a believer, that they were your brother and sister in Christ. And that's exactly how we should look at our fellow believers. They aren't just a church member or a Baptist or a Christian, that they are brothers and sisters in Christ. God presents this idea multiple times throughout the scriptures. Ephesians 1 5 does it well. In Ephesians 1, verse 5, it says that God predestines us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus himself, according to the kind intention of his will. See, this is the thing that really matters in the church. We make big deals out of things that don't matter. We'll make a big deal out of age. We'll make a big deal out of race. We'll make a big deal out of education. We'll make a big deal out of your socioeconomic class, your voting record. We'll make big deals about where you came from or how you grew up, but we are all children of the king, adopted and heirs to the promise. See, when we look around the room, we shouldn't see our differences. We should see what we have in common. Who here has ever been to a family reunion? Hopefully a lot of you. Sometimes family reunions just like Christmas. Especially if you live around your whole family. They're just like, they're all here, right? Like family reunions for you is like Sunday. And you look around that room and, and, and you, can, you can find the differences. Well, that's Uncle Herb. He's a Republican. And that's Aunt Susie. She's a Democrat. That's Uncle Charlie. He likes the Kansas City Chiefs. And that's my cousin. He's a Louisville Cardinal. And we can start pointing out all the things that make us different. That one, they went to Central and they went to John. 
And you know that family over there, they're the hoity-toity ones. They're part of E-Town School. And we can point to all of the differences in the room, but really when it comes right down to it, when it says, who are all these people? And you'd say, they're my family. We should do that here. We can look around this room and say, well, they like contemporary music. And they like hymns. Well, they think Sunday school should start promptly at 945. And they like to kind of just let people mingle for a while and start a little later. Well, those people think you should wear a dress and tie to church. And these people over there are just happy you remembered pants. And they can look out in a group like this. And if, you, and if someone came with you and they looked at this wild bunch of people that you two are about to get baptized into, are you sure you thought through that, Ed? Yeah, good, Noah? And you say, who are all of these people? Would you say, they're my family. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been saved by the same grace. Because we were all sinners and we needed saving. Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, the churches in the Galatia region, and he said this. He said, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This brings to light one more thing that we all share. And that is we all have the same mission. I really, truly believe that in the 105 years that ministry has taken place in this area, that our mission hasn't changed. And I really, I, you know, and I, I don't really want there to be a time machine because I'm afraid it would mess everything up and bring back dinosaurs and all that stuff. But I really, truly believe if we could go back in time, that we could go to that handful of people that started meeting in that little schoolhouse over there, and we said, what is, what, wh- why are you doing this? Why, you all have churches somewhere else. You guys load up the, the wagon or, or get in your automobile or whatever it is, and you head to, head to other churches. Why is it so important for you to be here in this school and starting a Sunday school now? And I think they would say the same thing that we should say today is they would look at each other and say, because the gospel needs to come to Tunnel Hill and beyond. Brothers and sisters, that's why we are here. I'm not sure there is a single thing that unites us more than when we all have the same goal and the same mission in mind. You think about times in American history where where our country was the most unified. More often than not, it was because they unified together around a cause. Overcoming the Great Depression, winning World War II, sending the British back to that island. When we as a country were most unified, it was when we rallied to the same I have never once heard anybody talk about political parties or any of those other things when they talk about landing someone on the moon. Did you know that? Some of you remember that happening. Do you remember the moon landing? Do you remember the moon landing? 
The moon landing? Do you remember it? I'll ask you later. It's okay. Who, else, who remembers the moon landing? Was our country, I'm just curious, I'm really asking, was our country just, was everybody excited about that? Hopefully, if not, then you just ruined my example, and that's okay. That's why I should not ad-lib like this. This is a terrible idea. When we rally around the same thing, the same mission, the same goal, we don't think about our differences anymore. We think about what we have in common. And wouldn't you know it, Jesus gave us something to rally around. Jesus came up and he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This command by God that we call the Great Commission unites us as a church, and not only unites us as a church, but it unites us with churches across this country, across the continent, and across languages and countries and oceans. We are all working towards this same goal, to see lost people be found, to see the nations be glad because they have a Savior in Jesus Christ. It's what it means to be in covenant with one another. It is what we exist to do. See, when, we, when God gives us this command to love our church, he's calling us to see all the things that unite us and bring us together. That we were all sinners saved by grace through Christ Jesus, that we have been made a family through Jesus Christ, that we are part of the family of God, that our love for God unites us and our mission to bring glory to God brings us all together. As I was preparing, I thought of a story. I don't think this is a true story. But there's a story about a woman who, who came into the pastor's office one day and she said, I'm leaving the church. And the pastor said, okay. Why? And she said, because this church is full of hypocrites and liars, that there's lazy people and gluttons, that there's people who don't give like they should and people that don't serve like they should, and I've had enough of it and I'm going somewhere else. And he said, okay, before you do that, can I ask you to do something? And she said, what? And he took a coffee mug and he filled it as full as he could. And he handed it to her and he said, I want you to walk around the church building three times. And she said, that's ridiculous. And he said, just try. And so she did and she walked it around and, and, and when it was all said and done and, and, he said, and she came back in and she set it down and she said, what was the point of that? And he said, well, let me ask you a question. While you were walking around the church with that, with that cup in your hand, did you notice the, the hypocrites and the, the, the lazy people and, and the, the gluttons and all those other people? And she said, no. And he said, but you said they're everywhere, that, that you've had it up to here with them. How come you didn't notice them? She said, because I was focusing on the cup. And he said, exactly. If you spent your time focusing on the task that God has put in front of you, then you're not going to waste your time noticing the sins of all the other people in the room. 
if you will join me in the work, then you may see a very different church. And that's my challenge for you today. First off, if you had to, if you had to stop after the first two, as you look around the room and you realize that we all share the same uh, sin problem and we all have this same need, but you have not experienced the grace that so many of us have experienced, then we want to invite you to that today because the greatest news in the world is, is that grace is offered to you freely through a relationship with Christ Jesus. And we would implore you today to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. To believe that he is everything he said he was and to surrender yourself to his leadership. But if you're a believer in Christ, especially if you are a member of this church today, my challenge to you today is to begin to see what God sees. That we are all people who have been saved by grace. That we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have a job to do together. Let us pray. My God, my exceeding joy. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you so much for the reminder that we have in scripture. Lord, all too often we we joke about and we talk about churches and, and, and how divided they are. But God, I pray that the truth that we see in our passage today would, would really ring out to us. And God, that we would no longer see the, the thousands of things that may divide us or may make us different. And God, we would begin to see the things that unite us. And Lord, that that would move us to grace and compassion and love. And with that, Lord, that you would mobilize us, that you would just stir up our hearts to move to accomplish the work that you've called us to accomplish. Lord, every single one of us in this room, you know that you desire a close walk with and a close relationship with, and God, that you have a purpose and a plan for it. And God, I pray that you would change our perspective so that when we look out on the people of this room, that we see our families who we love. And God, that would be what shapes our lives. Lord, we ask these things in the precious name of Christ Jesus. Amen.